Well, good morning, Grace. Thank you for joining us. You'll be glad you did. Today, we're finishing up our series called Reboot. <clears throat> Reboot is kind of the ideal, the idea, the awareness that maybe we should just individually just reboot. Let's start over. And even as a church, let's reboot. Let's start over. And what that means is to be thinking and living biblically like in the culture, not away from it. We're not going to isolate from the culture. We're not going to imitate the culture. Our hope is to infiltrate the culture. We'll have to live a courageous life to do that. We've been doing a deep dive in just two simple sentences, not simple, actually deep sentences in Romans chapter 12, verses one and two. It says, therefore, I urge you, my brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable and acceptable to God, which is it, your logical, your spiritual service of worship. And then he goes on and says, do not be conformed to this world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that, right, so that you would prove the, what the will of God is, which is good and acceptable and perfect. We started the series in the first week of January. That was about 40 days ago. And in that first lesson, we said, well, what is, what is to be conformed to this world? What is this culture that we're living under? And I proposed the value that today's culture violates right, the sanctity of words and logic, but for a purpose. And the purpose is to divide things that are sacred, sacred in the mind of God, set apart for a purpose, relationships with our fellow human beings. It's dividing families, it's dividing churches and even civilizations. And so we kind of, some of you took us up on the pledge. I'm gonna just abstain from all sorts of input in my life, except for like the Bible or sources, you know, from the Bible and just be clean of that, you know, be like, be distant from that. And it's been about 41 or two days. I, I looked up just last night. Did you know there's a big football game today? That's, a, I, that's news. And other trivial news that I missed out on, I think I'm going to just do another 40 days. Join me if you like. You don't want to miss a thing except some bad things, I guess, in many respects. Well, anyway, the idea that um, words and logic are being violated for the purpose of division, we have a scholar with us today, a very special guest, who on her webpage says she respects the power of words and the use and, and the power of the gospel. She is committed to the restoration of language so that she can unite people to have a conversation about the meaning of the life of Jesus Christ, his death, and the power of his resurrection and the forgiveness that that, that brings to us. So perfect for the series that we're doing together. Dr. Rebecca McLaughlin is going to join us in just a few minutes. Uh, let me introduce kind of her resume. She was raised in the United Kingdom, she has a doctorate um, from Cambridge in um, English literature. She uh, moved to the United States uh, in 2008, where she served for about nine years in a ministry some of you know about, Veritas Forum, which is a way to encourage and instruct and, and motivate a faculty member to use their faith, not just be courageous in explaining their faith, but, but apply their faith in the discipline that, that they practice regularly. 
she's written three books, and those and her first book was a, not just a bestseller, but also an award-winning book from Christianity Today and the Gospel Coalition. It's called, we've been selling it for weeks, and we bought some more to sell this week, uh, Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. It is a beautiful defense of the Christian faith, but it's with a different style. It's a new kind of defense because there's a new kind of atheism, and there's a different kind of culture. Apologetics has changed, in other words. And it's, it's, it's a book that I would use if a single word, it would be the word meek. Meek in the biblical sense. Picture, you might have even seen the video, a 600-pound gorilla just petting a kitten. <laughs> Power under control. It is a powerful book that's humble. The, the, the mood of the book itself it makes you want to become like that type of writer or that type of person. The application for the book itself, if, I would, if, if you wouldn't mind, it would be that you'd read the book for sure, but it's a, it's a, it's, it's a perfect book to, to like be in a book club with someone that you have a, a good friendship with and say, sure, I'll read your book on attributes of atheism and, and then I'll, we can read this book together and let's discuss this and like see where truth leads us. Why don't we use true words and logic and have a civil conversation. It's perfect for that. Of course, it's going to deal with subject matter like the problem of evil and suffering. Is the Christian faith scientifically viable? But also new topics of the day like sexuality and, and the issues that are current today. There's a version of that that she wrote for teenagers called 10 Questions uh, that every teen should ask and answers about Christianity. Uh, a wonderful work, work that similar to the other uh, book that I mentioned, and the way that would be best to be used is like a, a, a parent and a child in that age category, they could read the book together and to discuss that. She has a, a, a short but concise and powerful article that she wrote in, on the Gospel Coalition website that I would encourage parents to read. The title is something to the effect of, don't protect your children from these difficult debates, rather train them on how to have conversations about it. Lastly, a book, that uh, she just, I think it might even have a 2021 copyright date, is the secular creed. And Dr. McLaughlin just works down <laughs> the signs that are in our neighborhoods that are like, in some respects, uh, victims of the false dilemma of either or. Like what, you have to choose one or the other. Well, what if there's some stuff in between? And not only that, but like, how do you have a moral conversation without a foundation for morality? And the only foundation for morality is a, a biblical Christian, Judeo-Christian worldview. And so it takes each one of those topics and say, yeah, but you can't have righteous anger without, without God validating those moral absolutes. So with all of that, just to let you know who will be speaking with us today, I'd like to bring up Dr. Rebecca McLaughlin to come up on stage with us. Thank you so much for traveling. She lives in Boston, actually Cambridge. I do. Uh, if you could come up a little closer, we were oh, okay. told it. Thank you. <laughs> so today, uh, you know, as an introduction, in many respects, in the book of Esther, it's a profound book uh, in the absence of the name of God, right? There's the, the nemesis, uh, Haman, who seems to have unlimited power for evil, and he builds the gallow to kill Mordecai, Mordecai the Jew. And... And in his building of that gallow, it turns out the thing that the Jews were to fear the most 
were in fact, was in fact the, the means that Haman would be destroyed. He'd be the first to fall. He would die in the context of his, of his own invention. It's the original Dr. Frankenstein story in many respects. And I, I, I thought about that when I looked at what um, Rebecca will be talking to us today, because I think sometimes the very thing that we fear is the thing that we ought to grasp. The, the, the assaults of Christianity are actually maybe the places where we ought to start and consider enjoying. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about that? I'd love to. It's great to be with you guys. I've got to tell you, I've never been compared to a 600-pound gorilla before. I'm not quite sure how to take that, but uh, <laughs> I'll try to live up to that expectation. Um, <laughs> There's one other little attribute that you don't know. Rebecca, her husband is an OSU cowboy. It's true. Yeah, so she's literally married to a cowboy. It's true. So, and you've got to wonder, her, her children, she had three children, is that right? Three children. I'm sure they're debating. I want mom's accent. How do I get mom's accent? <laughs> So, anyway. <laughs> the, the first time I visited Oklahoma with Brian, uh, he took me to Stillwater, to Oklahoma State's campus. And I saw a guy dressed as a cowboy. And I said, Brian, why is that guy dressed as a cowboy? He said, because he is a cowboy. <laughs> I was like, oh my good, I honestly, I thought the cowboys were just in films. I did not know that there are actual real, <laughs> like actual cowboys still today. So we then spent the next hour driving around campus with me taking like surreptitious photos of cowboys. So exciting. Um, as Pastor Matt mentioned, I'm, I'm English, and so that means I have to talk about Harry Potter wherever I go. Uh, but I need to have a show of hands first. Raise your hand if you have not read Harry Potter books or seen the films. Okay, okay. I'm sorry, guys. You so had 10 or 20 years. You've got a little, you've had a while. Yeah. So, so there are two problems in our service this morning. One, we're not hearing the word preach, which would be better than anything I've got to say. Uh, number two is if you haven't read Harry Potter, you need to get like, you should probably walk out and start reading now. Um, but if you don't want to do that, I need you to block your ears for the next couple of minutes because I'm going to drop the most horrendous spoiler and I would hate to be that person who ruined it for you. But if you have read the books or seen the films, you'll remember that in Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, J.K. Rowling basically sticks a knife into her readers' hearts. Dumbledore is the Gandalf of the series, the only man whose power for good can match Lord Voldemort's evil. But in the sixth book, a weakened Dumbledore stands at the top of the astronomy tower, surrounded by his enemies, and he appeals to Harry's teacher nemesis, Severus Snape, for help. Severus, please. And Snape kills him. The scene is devastating. We never liked Professor Snape, but we hope beyond hope that he was Dumbledore's man, and now his betrayal of his mentor is complete. It's only in the last book that we realize how wrong we were. When Harry dives into that pensieve, do you remember the, the magical bowl where you can dive into somebody else's past? And there we discovered that everything Snape has done has been driven by his passionate, hopeless, unrequited love for Harry's mother. We see Snape's anguish when Lily Potter is murdered by Voldemort and how he thenceforth commits himself to Dumbledore. We hear Dumbledore telling Snape that he is dying from the slow workings of an irreversible curse and making Snape promise to kill him when the moment comes. And suddenly the meaning of Severus, please, is reversed. When our non-Christian friends look over at the Christian faith, they see a lot of things that look like Snape killing Dumbledore. 
They see a white-centered religion with a history of racism and scriptures that condone slavery. They see an anti-intellectual mindset and a contradictory Bible that's been disproved by science again and again. They see homophobia, the denigration of women, and a refusal to acknowledge that love is love. But just as when Harry dived into Snape's memories, his understanding of Snape's life completely changed. I believe that when we look more closely at each of these seemingly devastating roadblocks to faith in Jesus, they become a signpost. I think we have a great opportunity before us in this cultural moment today. But in order to grasp that opportunity, there are four things that we must do. Number one, we must reclaim diversity. Number two, we must reclaim the university. Number three, we must reclaim morality. And number four, we must reclaim sexuality. But we must do all of these things with humility and not by watering the scriptures down, but by lapping them up. Right. So number one, we must reclaim diversity. Back in February in 2019, a Nigerian street preacher named Oliwoli Ilasanmi stood outside a train station in my hometown of London preaching to the commuters as they went by. And two white British police officers came up to him and gave him a choice. Go away or be arrested. I will not go away, Mr. Ilasami replied, because I need to tell them the truth. And Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. They don't want to listen to that, the officers replied. They want you to go away. You don't want to listen to that? Mr. Ilasami said, you will listen when you are dead. You will listen when you are dead. And so he was arrested. What do we make of this story? Are we encouraged by our brother's faith? I certainly am. Are we reminded that preaching the gospel always comes at a cost and that we Western Christians have got far too used to a comfortable life, for sure? But a black African Christian preaching the exclusive message of Jesus while white Westerners block their ears is a little parable for the religious world today. See, if we go back about 40 years, every sociologist of religion was predicting that as the world became more modern, more scientific, more educated, that religious belief would naturally decline. It's what had happened in Western Europe, where I'm from. And so the logic went where Western Europe leads, the rest of the world must follow. But no. In the last 40 years, not only has religious belief failed to decline globally, but now as experts look out over the next 40 years to 2060, they anticipate an increasingly religious world. Right now, Christianity is the largest global belief system with about 31% of the world identifying as Christian. That proportion is set to increase slightly to 32% by 2060. Islam, which is the second largest global belief system, is set to increase from about 25, 26% to 31%, making it a very close competitor with Christianity. Buddhism and Hinduism are both expected to decline slightly. But here's the real shock. The proportion of people who do not identify with any religious belief, so that includes atheists, agnostics, and people who would just check none on a census form if asked what religion do you affiliate with, that proportion is set to decline from 16% to 13%. Tide isn't going out in the religion, it's coming in. 
Now, I think this is surprising to our non-Christian friends, but what's perhaps even more surprising is that Christianity is the belief system of diversity. Now, if we look across the world today, Christianity is hands down the most diverse belief system. If you look at race, if you look at culture, if you look at geography, if you look at socioeconomics. If we look at America today, black Americans are as much as 10 percentage points more likely to identify as Christians than their white peers. They're more likely to go to church every week, to read the Bible, to pray, to hold core evangelical beliefs, whether or not they would use that particular word. White Americans sometimes think that immigration is eroding America's Christian history. But in fact, immigration is a much needed blood transfusion for the American church. I live in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and in one of the adjacent cities of Somerville, English is the third most commonly spoken language at evangelical churches after Portuguese and Creole. And this should not surprise us. See, the first century Jewish man we worship broke through every racial and cultural barrier of his day, and he commanded his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. They began at once. We meet the first African Christian in the book of Acts, the Ethiopian eunuch of Acts chapter eight. And Ethiopia went on to become one of the first officially Christian states in the world before St. Patrick ever went to Ireland and, and centuries before the gospel came to America. In the book of Revelation, we have an amazing vision of people from every tribe and tongue and nation worshiping Jesus together. This is our destiny. And in many ways, this is becoming our reality. Look at China today. China is the global center of atheism. But experts believe that in the next five years, there'll be more Christians in China than in America. And some even think that China could be a majority Christian country by 2060. Wow. When our non-Christian friends realize this, my, my friends, I don't know about yours, they care deeply about diversity. And when they hear the exclusive message of the gospel, they imagine that it's all about white Westerners forcing their beliefs down other people's throats. But when Mr. Ilasanmi said to those white British police officers that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life, he was not saying, my culture's cooking is better than yours. He was saying, I was starving too till I found bread. So let's reclaim diversity. Because Christianity is the most multiracial, multi-ethnic, multicultural movement in all of history. Right. Number two, we must reclaim the university. I have a dear friend from back in my grad school days in the UK. Um, he is now a professor of the natural sciences at Harvard. He's so smart that he isn't just in like one scientific subject, he's the professor of the natural sciences. <laughs> and he is a, a culturally Jewish atheist. So he and I have been arguing about God um, for many years. And a few years ago, I took him and his then girlfriend to an event at Harvard where the agnostic chair of the Harvard philosophy department was in dialogue with New Testament scholar N.T. Wright. And the title of the event was The Bible, Gospel, Guide, or Garbage. And after the event, I said to my friend, I said, I, I know that you think that what I believe is crazy. His then girlfriend, who was a much gentler soul than either of us, said, I'm sure he doesn't think that. <laughs> I said, yes, he does. I believe that the whole of human history revolves around a first century Jewish man who died on a cross and was supposedly raised to life three days later. Crazy, right? right. 
My friend said yes. I said, the problem is I think that you believe some crazy things as well. You see, our friends think that they are standing on a perfectly coherent sort of secular ground that does all the work that Christianity does for us except without them having to believe in crazy things. But there is no such belief system. And in in this next generation, I I believe that the university is going to have to start grappling with Christianity again. It's a professor named Fangang Yang at Purdue University who's one of the leading experts of sociology of religion in China. And he says that the university in the West is going to have to go through a paradigm shift, much like a scientific revolution, when the failure of the secularization hypothesis comes home to roost, i.e. when Western academics realize that the world is not becoming less religious as it becomes more modern. See, for decades now in the university, this secularization hypothesis has functioned not just as a diagnosis, but also as a prescription. It's not just what will happen, but what should happen. So what are Western academics gonna do when they realize that it hasn't happened? And that atheism, far from being the belief system of diversity and progress, is actually the belief system of white Western men and communist regimes. It it can be easy for us as Christians today and for our non-Christian friends to get the idea that Christianity is anti-intellectual. So, you know, the gospel is simple. It's something we can explain to a small child or, or somebody with learning disabilities. But Jesus calls us to love God with all our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength, and he is not content with three out of four. And if we look back over the last 2,000 years of Christian history, we'll find that Christians have written some of the greatest literature of all time. We'll find that Christians have dreamt up some of the greatest philosophy of all time. And perhaps most surprisingly to our non-Christian friends, Christians invented what we now call science not as an alternative hypothesis to belief in a creator God, but because they believed in a creator God who was both rational and free. There's a professor at Princeton University named Hans Halverson. He's probably one of the top four philosophers of science in the world. And he says not only is it the case that the modern scientific method was first developed by Christians because of their Christian beliefs, but that even today, Theism provides a better philosophical foundation for science than atheism does. In fact, he says atheism doesn't give you a philosophical foundation for science at all. So in this next generation, let's reclaim the university, not as a hostile takeover, but as a homecoming. Because Christianity is an anti-intellectual. It's the greatest intellectual movement in all of history. Homecoming indeed. Right. It, the, we lost the beachhead that we, <laughs> that we invented mm. uh, because the truth, the truth originates from God. I, I, I uh, remember an interview with Dr. Peter Kraft. Uh, he's a philosophy professor at Boston College. This is maybe a little more than 10 years ago. And he stated just this fact that there is somewhat of a revolution and maybe even a revival in the academy and particularly in the hard sciences, because he said the, the more you look at creation and with the more details and what is required to keep all things together, and the beauty, the wonder, it leads an objective person 
to believe in at least a creator. And he said, there's, there's things happening at the academy. They're bringing people to theism and some actually into surrendering their lives to Jesus Christ by just looking at the facts, looking at what God has done. And I, I remember stepping back thinking, I've been ignorant of what is taking place in the academy and, and therefore been discouraged knowing the, the words that you've spoken to us and how many people are starting to realize the emptiness of, of, of not just atheism, but consistent nihilism. Mm-hmm. It's encouraging to see that open-minded men and women are saying, well, maybe, just maybe, there's, there's absolutes after all, and there mm-hmm. must be a maker. Mm-hmm. So what other, uh, I guess, uh, roadblocks are actually real road signs for Christianity that we need to <laughs> engage in? Yeah, so a third point bridging from what you just said there, Pastor Matt, is to, we must reclaim morality. Uh, I've read in the last years a number of books by non-Christian historians and philosophers. Um, one example is a book by Yuval Noah Harari, who's an Israeli philosopher, uh, sorry, historian, and he wrote this global bestseller called Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind. Now he's speaking from a, an atheist perspective and he's looking at the, the history of humanity. And that book includes statements like this, Homo sapiens has no natural rights, just as chimpanzees, hyenas, and spiders have no natural rights. He says that human rights are figments of our fertile imaginations. He quotes the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And he says, the Americans got the idea of equality from Christianity, but if we stop believing in Christian myths about creation and and humans being, um, having souls and being made in God's image, what does it even mean that humans are equal? He says that the scientific study of Homo sapiens has embarrassingly little to do with human rights and value. Or I think of another non-Christian historian, a fellow Brit um, called Tom Holland, not Spider-Man, different Tom Holland. (laughs) And and he wrote um, this massive but very interesting book called Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. Now Tom Holland himself stopped believing in the Christian God when he was a kid. He found the Greek and Roman gods much more attractive than the seemingly pathetic hero of Christianity. And he he, um, studies as a historian, wrote a number of popular historical books. And then he set out to research for this great book, Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. And in it, he's looking back over the last 2,000 years of Christian history in the West. And what he discovered in the course of his research was that the, the moral beliefs that he as an agnostic believed to be basic moral common sense, self-evident truths, not needing any religious grounding, turned out to be specifically Christian beliefs. Now, for example, his belief in universal human equality and rights, his belief that men and women were equally morally valuable, his belief that the strong and the rich and the powerful didn't have the right to trample on the poor and the weak and the marginalized. I don't know if he has yet properly put his trust in Jesus, and I heard an interview with him where he was talking about it was like he was on the diving board sort of considering whether he should take the plunge. Or I think of a, a friend of mine, uh, one of the few people actually who knew me and my Oklahoma husband before we knew each other, um, a wonderful woman named Sarah Irving Stonebreaker. She comes from Australia originally. She's now a professor of history at a university in Australia. She was a convinced atheist when she came to Cambridge to do her PhD. She was a convinced atheist when she went to Oxford to do her postdoc. But while she was at Oxford, 
She went to a series of lectures by a fellow Australian, a world-famous philosophy professor named Peter Singer. Now, Peter Singer is one of the atheist philosophers who takes very seriously the fact that we can't just trade on Christian ethics anymore. And so rather than saying that all human beings are equal by virtue of their humanness, Singer says that we should evaluate beings, whether human or otherwise, on the basis of their capacities. For example, their capacity to suffer, their capacity for self-awareness, etc. And by Singer's calculation, a human infant is less morally valuable than an adult pig. As my friend Sarah heard these lectures, she experienced what she later described as a sort of intellectual vertigo, as she realized that her atheism stuck a knife in the back of her deepest moral beliefs. She had thought that Christianity was the enemy of diversity, the enemy of universal human rights, the enemy of equality for men and women, and of care for the poor. She gradually discovered it was the basis for those things. And so as a young assistant professor of history at Florida State University, she put her trust in Jesus. Now, when we come to receive Jesus, we come flat on our faces morally. So I could talk to you now about the evidence that shows that people who attend church every week actually are much sort of better in, in a number of moral axes than, than folks who aren't religious, whether it's in terms of how much money they give to charity or how much they volunteer or how um, less likely they are to be engaged in various criminal activities. But there's an extent to which I don't even know that that's helpful for us to hear because we Christians are so quick to get up on our moral high ground. And actually, we can't come to Jesus that way, and I don't think we can share Jesus that way either. So in this next generation, let's reclaim morality like divers pulling treasure from a wreck, Mm -hmm. and let's flee self-righteousness like toxic waste. And that brings us to our last point, which is that we must reclaim sexuality. When Snape killed Dumbledore, all doubt in the reader's minds as to whether he was on the side of good or evil died as well. And when we stand for Christian sexual ethics in our culture today, we move over in people's minds from delusion to bigotry. But just as when Harry dived into Stapes' memories, he found not a story of hate, but a story of love. When we look at what the scriptures have to say about sexuality, we find that it's a love story too. The love song begins in the Old Testament as prophet after prophet compares God to a faithful, loving husband and Israel to his often unfaithful wife. We see that that picture made more clear when Jesus steps onto the stage of human history and declares that he is the bridegroom. We see the Apostle Paul writing to the Ephesians and explaining that human Christian marriage is like a little scale model of Jesus' love for his church. And we see the love song rise to a full-blown crescendo in the book of Revelation, when a great shout goes out, the wedding of the Lamb has come, and Jesus' marriage to his church brings heaven and earth back together. This is why marriage is male-female, and why husbands and wives are called to different roles. 
Like Christ and the church, it's a love across difference. Like Christ and the church, it's a love built on sacrifice. Like Christ and the church, it's a flesh-uniting, life-creating, never-ending, exclusive love. Marriage is meant to point us to Christ. But it's also meant to disappoint us. Because even the best human romance could only ever be a tiny echo of Jesus' love for us. Now, one of the great ironies of the 1960s, um, some of you in this room will be old enough to remember, um, was that this, the sexual revolution was sold to us as the liberation of women. You know, for centuries, men had been finding ways to sort of sneak around Christian marriage and have commitment-free sex. And now, great news, thanks to the pill, women could as well. But in the time since the 60s, women's self-reported happiness in America has actually declined. Why is that? One of the reasons is that commitment-free sex is a poison chalice. For both men and women, stable marriage is correlated with multiple mental and physical health benefits. But for women in particular, increasing our numbers of sexual partners is correlated with negative mental health outcomes. Increased likelihood of depression and suicidal ideation and sadness and alcohol abuse and drug abuse. We were sold sexual freedom as a gift. And it turns out that it's a poison. So let's not lose confidence in Christian marriage. But we must also remember, and this is where I think we Christians often most trip up, we must remember that marriage is not the only relationship that is designed to give us a taste of Jesus' love. This is my commandment, said Jesus to his disciples, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than that he lay down his life for his friends. Now, if we're honest, in most of our churches, we would have finished that sentence differently. We would have said, greater love has no one than this than the love of a husband and a wife. Or maybe the love of a parent and a child. But Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, than that he laid down his life for his friends. And we see in Jesus' life and ministry, we see a, a, a beautiful, extraordinary intensity of love between people of the same sex in the body of Christ. We see it in the Apostle Paul's writing, we see him call us brothers and sisters together, we see him say that we are one body, we hear him say to the Thessalonians that he was among them like a nursing mother with her children. Now that's a little awkward sounding, right? And then we hear him write in his letter to Philemon about his friend Onesimus, that Onesimus is his very heart. Now imagine Pastor Matt here saying that a, a male friend of his was his very heart. We'd all feel Ooh, a little bit, you know, a little bit intense, a little bit awkward. The kind of love and community that we see in the New Testament is at a level of intimacy that we Christians almost never reach. And, and part of reclaiming sexuality in this next generation is going to be us reclaiming fierce, abiding, non-erotic, non-romantic love. Now, I'm not saying any of this is easy or straightforward. I've been a Christian for as long as I can remember and for as long as I can remember, I've been attracted to other women. 
If I wasn't a Christian, I'd likely be married to a woman today instead of to a man. Now you look at me and think, oh, this sort of weird, strange phenomenon that you must be. Um, I am weird, but not for that reason. I'm sort of weird in all sorts of ways. Um, I, I actually, the largest uh, demographic of same-sex attracted people is, is women like me who are attracted to other women, but not exclusively so to where they couldn't possibly be married to a man. So it's about 14% of women who experience same-sex attraction and only about 1% who are exclusively attracted to other women. For men, it seems like it's about 7% who experience same-sex attraction and 2% who are exclusively attracted to folks of their same sex. And people can also experience change in the course of their, their life in, in any and all directions. We humans are very messy, complicated creatures. But the question for all of us in the room today, whether we're married or single, whether we're attracted to folks of our same sex or of the opposite sex, the question is not, are we ever attracted to someone we're not married to? The question is, will we submit our attractions to Christ? Right. We have too often, as churches, bought in to the idolization of marriage, which is a very good thing. And we have done so at the expense of singleness, which the New Testament actually holds up as an equally good, if not even better, state for Christians. And we have done so at the expense of friendship. And if we have created Christian culture too often, where if you're not married, then you feel like you don't belong. That's the opposite of the picture that we have in the New Testament. So let's reclaim sexuality in this next generation. And as we go out with the message of the gospel, as you guys go out into this city with the message of the gospel, we must reclaim diversity, reclaim the university, reclaim the morality, and reclaim sexuality. Right. And we must do all of those things with humility. You know, we must repent of the ways that we have allowed racism to infect our churches. We must repent of the ways in which we've abandoned the life of the mind. We must repent of the actual homophobia, i.e. The, the fear and hatred of gay and lesbian people that's impacted our churches for years. Because the, the same-sex attracted people in our congregations who are living faithfully for Jesus are not an embarrassment, they're an asset. So there is no more powerful way in our culture to testify to the gospel than to turn away from your own sexual and romantic fulfillment because you believe in a better love. Mm -hmm. So we need to take a hard turn away from ourselves and a hard turn toward the scriptures because Jesus is not a relic of the ancient world. He is our modern world's best hope. Wow. Um, we have a, just a few moments for questions. Um, what, Rebecca, what do you, how do you perceive the future, let's say 10 years from now, fast forward, where, where do you, if we did this, <laughs> you know, took hold of these, these roadblocks that are really road signs, where do you see the church mm. or a culture? Yeah. What I would love to see, you know, number one on that point of, of reclaiming diversity, there is so much heartbreaking sin that we can look back on um, in our culture in, in this area that has, has led us into a place where many of our non-Christian friends legitimately associate Christianity with racism. And that is so antithetical to what the scriptures teach. So what I would love to see in the next 10 years is us breaking that down 
and us living more into the vision that the New Testament gives us of people from every tribe and tongue and nation worshiping Jesus together. Like this is our destiny. We need to make this our reality in tangible ways. I think we need to create a culture where kids are raised in church to be the most intellectually curious people in town and rather than being sort of afraid that they might learn too much and therefore fall away from Jesus, I believe that Jesus shines more brightly if we expose our kids to all sorts of other potential options. Jesus is not gonna look worse, he's only gonna look better. I I think we need to have an, an ethic of humble love toward those outside the church that draws people in and it's, it's an ethic that we're given in the New Testament we see in the early church and we've you know, done better or worse on, on various questions um, in this, but, but I think we need to have an ethic of, of humble love as we reclaim morality. And, and most, not most importantly, but equally importantly, we need to make it real that the church is a family. Um, I work, walk into church on a Sunday morning with my husband and our three children that is not the primary family unit for Christians. The primary family unit is actually the church. And so on on a Sunday morning and throughout the week, we need to find ways to live into that reality so that our our brothers and sisters who are are single um, or maybe widowed or coming, all of of, um, God's people in all of the different life situations they're in, that we're family working together, that's how we're gonna look very different 10 years time from now. Uh, this is for me and they can listen in. Um, <laughs> but you know, your, your gentle courage is both inspirational uh, and contagious, but as a blunt instrument, I, I, I don't understand how that happens. And I was wondering if that was natural for you, your, your tone in your books, and even today, I, I want some of that, but I'm more argumentative and trying to win an argument than I am trying to save a relationship. So mm-hmm. could you, and I'm not suggesting that's good. <laughs> there's, there's a wake of injury behind me. Was, is this natural for you or is this something that, that you had to like surrender? What, what, how'd you get Yeah, I, if, if you read through the gospels, um, you'll find at times thinking, oh my goodness, the apostles are so dumb. Right? Um, (laughs) You know, Jesus says, just explain that he is going to suffer and die, and they want to argue about who's the most important. I'm just like them. Like, I have a pride problem. I I quite like to position myself on the moral high ground, and I quite like winning arguments. That's, you know, makes me feel good. And if somebody is coming at me and wants to um, attack my beliefs or attack my my tribe, you know, they want to attack the church and the church's record on this or on that, um, or if they want to attack my country. My response is like my first knee-jerk re- response or sort of heart-jerk response, if that's a thing, um, is to want to fight them back with the same weapons. That is not what we can do as Christians. We have very powerful weapons as Christians, but they are the weapons of humble love. And like I was saying earlier, we we come into the Christian faith flat on our faces morally. We don't come on the moral high ground. Uh, We come on our knees to Jesus. And and that is how we share the gospel as well. And that's why I think we need to engage in dialogue with people who disagree with us. Uh, Rather than thinking, you know, how can I 
beat this person down and prove to them that I'm you know, intellectually or morally superior to them. We need to think, how can I love this person and how can I humbly bring the truth of Jesus to them? Because Jesus is on the moral high ground and he makes universal claims and we don't love anybody by pretending that he doesn't or by watering down the truth. But our job is not to convince other people that we're so great. We're actually coming to them as sinners in need of a savior and pointing them to him. And so it's, it doesn't come naturally to me. It's something I have to work on continually sure. is, yeah, fighting my pride and trying to cultivate humility. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, it, it is a, it's been a pleasure to have you here and, and it's been a joy to read your books and to, to, we'd like to pray for your ministry. Uh, you. just in, in closing, I, I think that uh, your explanation there, how do, you, how do you do it, comes back to full circle to our definition of what a disciple is and what it means to be holy, to become like Christ in all of life. And, and um, Christ is compassionate and loving and truthful and, and confrontational, but, but caring for the human soul. And so I think the, the becoming like Christ in that aspect of our lives is how we can become uh, great ambassadors for the gospel and, and to the glory of God. Mm. So, mm. Jesus was asked the question, like, how do you, how do you, what's the greatest commandment? And we, we etched it in glass, in case you forget. It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. mind. Uh, the beauty of our time together and, and her writing is that it's engaging the mind, and it's done so in a gentle and powerful way. I hope you've uh, learned and enjoyed your learning experience today. Let me pray for you. Mm. Rebecca is going to have to run for a plane so she won't be able to have a meet and greet after the service. That's just how planes work. So, <laughs> so <clears throat> they'll leave without you. So let me pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, we lift up the ministry that you have given um, Dr. Rebecca McLaughlin and the influence uh, that she has and the doors that you've opened for her, I'd ask that you continue to open those doors. We, bre- we, we pray uh, blessings upon her marriage, that you would strengthen and fortify and protect, that they would be, have the fullness of the experience of marriage in this lifetime. We pray for her young children, that you would protect them and provide for them. And they'd know that that protection and provision are coming from their mom and dad, but ultimately from you and that uh, you would call them and they'd surrender to you at an early age. I'd ask that you would bless um, this ministry, bless it indeed, expand, expand the boundaries of, of this insight in this time for such a time as this. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. amen.